Hello, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Football Collective podcast. We have got broadcaster Mr. Peter Drury with us today. And hello, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. So, Peter, so we will be having like eight to ten questions today, and some of them will be difficult for you to answer. Are you happy to answer all of them? Well, I'll try. I'll try. If I can't, I'll admit that I can't. Uh, so, yeah, I guess, I guess like this is your 29th year you are uh, entering as a broadcaster into the beautiful game of football. So, like from the point of view of a broadcaster, how do you prepare for a game? Well, um, each game I always consider to be like uh, an examination that you might sit at school or college. Uh, it's, it's simply um, a process of uh, learning and revising and gathering together of the um, various pieces of information you need to help um, underpin a broadcast that lasts for a couple of hours. The, 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 the two hours that sort of span the football match are the end of a process which can take a day or two days or three days, depending on what sort of a match it is. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a process of homework and learning. So, like, how does, you can say, how does a Manchester United versus Liverpool game differ from, you say, Bournemouth versus Sheffield United? Well, as the processes are very much the same. Um, I, I guess what you're driving at is that there is a greater familiarity of the players and the narrative if you're doing two very well-known teams like Manchester United and Liverpool. But um, the, the truth is that the bottom line is you must know who the players are. So I guess if you're doing Manchester United against Liverpool, certainly if it's midway through the season, you are probably going to be very confident about knowing all of the players. Um, if it's Bournemouth against Sheffield United, by the middle of the season, you should be fairly confident about most of the players there as well. But you, you might have to uh, consider doing extra homework on identification, that sort of thing. Um, but every match, regardless of whether it's the biggest clubs in the land or the smallest, has its own narrative. And it's the job of the commentator to make sure that he or she understands that narrative and, and all of the facts and figures that go with it. So whether it is Manchester United Liverpool or Bournemouth United, there's a story that attaches itself to that game. And uh, that story has many aspects and uh, has many statistics attached to it and, and personal stories. Um, and it's, it's my business to make sure I understand all of those. So like you have been in this business for over three decades now, almost three decades now, and you have done a lot of commentary in the early days over radio, I guess, before moving on to television. So what is the difference of modern-day football from that of the old days, like you can say the early days of the Premier League when it was like 1992 or 93? Well, that's an interesting question which I haven't really thought much about because it sort of evolves over time, and when you're part of it, you, you almost don't notice it changing. Um, and, and truth be told, I'm not sure it has changed Still, the game must be a bit faster. Um, what it is is much more closely scrutinised, of course. So, uh, the television in particular has, has moved on hugely, and the number of cameras at every match mean that every single little incident is noticed. Um, and in terms of its coverage, of course, what has happened in the last 15 or 20 years is the arrival of social media, which gives everybody a platform to express their opinion. Um, 15 or 20 years ago, 
the only opinions you heard were those perhaps broadcast on the television by the pundits uh, or the radio um, and, and written in the newspapers. Now the whole world is awash with individual opinion um, and that means that those at the, at the very heart of the game are, are subjected to a, to a degree of scrutiny which I guess when things are going well it's lovely but when they're not can be fairly brutal. But the actual football itself it's, it is, and of course, the rule changes and VAR and all that sort of thing. But essentially, the game of football is the same game it's always been. So, speaking about like the scrutiny, what do you think are the impacts of the VAR on the game? Like, do you think it has ta- it has taken away the charm of football a bit, the momentous joy of the football fan when the football team scores? Because now you have to wait for the big screen to show whether it is a goal or not a goal. And how does it affect you as a broadcaster? Because somebody scored a stupendous goal and you have already did your commentary on it and VAR brings it back for offside. Yes. Well, it can be frustrating. I, th- I think we as commentators are gradually coming to terms with the fact that we can become very excited about a goal and have to retract our excitement. I was commentating at Everton yesterday when Everton appeared to have scored a winning goal after 91 and a half minutes. And I think there's the full excitement package and, um, you know, went off into, into a, a great sort of uh, rocket of thrill. And, and then we realized that there was a VAR inspection and the goal didn't count anymore. And you can't really, as a commentator, apologize for that. You have to express the, the emotion at the time. And when the emotion changes, you have to express that change of emotion. Um, it, Listen, that can be mildly frustrating, but it's not the end of the world. It's probably harder for the players to swallow because they, they think, in case Everton's players think they've won the game in the last seconds and, and have all that, that excitement taken away. But um, if it's the right decision, if it's the right decision, then uh, who could argue uh, that that's, um, VAR isn't tidying up the game? It is. The problem comes when, uh, in the opinion of supporters, one way or another, despite VAR, the wrong uh, decision is reached. Um, then, then, of course, we're into a great sort of spiral of despair. Uh, we're all still learning about VAR. I think eventually we'll get there. I certainly don't think we'll go back from it now. Um, so, so we've just got, to, just got to stay on this sort of learning gradient and hopefully in time. We'll, we'll find some sort of optimum position. Uh, I have failed to ask this question to you the last time when we met, but you do commentary for Premier League productions that is broadcasted across the world, and you also do some commentary in the European games, in the UEFA Champions League, and I guess I heard you in the UEFA Europa League as well for Arsenal versus Olympiacos last Thursday, if I'm not wrong. That's right. Uh, yeah, so... What is the difference between doing a commentary in the EPL game and European game? And like, how, how does the atmosphere dif- differ from, say, a Europa League game between Arsenal and Olympiacos, which is a big game for Olympiacos, obviously, coming down to play at Arsenal, and an EPL game? Well, um, the, the atmospheres do vary, but just as they vary within Premier League, they vary within the European matches. And and indeed for beating the Premier League in the European match. As you say, Arsenal against Olympiacos in the League, 
felt like a very big game. I think mean, that could easily have been a Champions League game. Uh, there is a, a sort of difference of feel, I, I perceive, between a Champions League game and a Europa League game. Somehow there's something within you that tells you or what Europa League is opposed to Champions League, even though, as I say, against Olympiacos, he seems very, very well used to playing in the Champions League. And, and of course, within the Premier League, if you turn up at one of the great grounds, one of the massive clubs, and, and it's a huge match, then it's, it's just a huge atmosphere. And uh, that can be very different to going to one of the smaller grounds for a lower fee uh, game. But as I said before, Sartak, really, football is football. And each match is an occasion in itself uh, and needs reflecting for what it is. Um, I, I never, ever turn up to a match and think, oh, this isn't much of a game because uh, I'm not interested in who this team is or that team is because every match has its own narrative, its own reason to care. Um, what kind of competitive sport is it isn't competitive and people are trying to win and people care whether they win and they care if they lose. Um, and, and so really, whichever competition it's in, um, it's, it's exciting in its own right. So we we move on from the narrative of football a bit to some of the crucial aspects. Like you recently, I guess, heard about UEFA banning Manchester City yeah. from the all European competitions. How do you think will it have an impact on the English game? Well, the first thing to say about that, of course, is Manchester City will appeal vigorously against the ban. Um, but if you want to, if you want to presume that Manchester City's ban will carry on, I think its impact in the English game probably won't be that huge, because Manchester City's investors and backers will probably only redouble their determination and enthusiasm to uh, continue excelling. And, and whatever the rights and wrongs, and truthfully, I'm no expert on all of this financial fair play. I don't, I don't fully understand it and I don't pretend to. It's not my area of expertise. I, I merely read about it and um, have, have to understand it up to a point, but it's not football, it's business. And um, so, so we have to deal with that. The, the truth is, whether they've done it rightly or wrongly, Manchester City have produced some beautiful football teams over the last uh, decade or so. And I would imagine that they would continue to produce beautiful football teams um, carrying forward, albeit that those teams might not uh, play in the uh, European competitions for a couple of years. The, 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 the knock-on might be that top players choose not to come to Manchester City for a couple of years because uh, they can't be in the Champions League, and that, that might be considered a, a potential weakening factor. But I'm sure they'll remain a very, very uh, competitive club. So another question is, what do you think bring more glories to a football club, like hiring and firing managers, the Chelsea way, focusing on the short-term success, like you bring a manager every two or three seasons in, trying to win the Premier League, a couple of cups, or building a team to cherish in the future, like City did with Guardiola or Liverpool are doing with Jurgen Klopp? Well, um, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to be truthful. Um, you talk about Manchester City as a, as a comparison or a contrast with, uh, say, Chelsea. The fact is that they are both backed by uh, wealthy people and 
those people are able to hire the very best coaches, whether for two years, three, four or five, um, and facilitate those coaches um, with, the, with the very best uh, players. Um, and because they are considered top coaches and because these are top-end clubs, if those coaches don't deliver, then they will be replaced. Manchester City uh, continue with Pep Guardiola because he's the very, very best. Um, and it's, it's hard to identify who they would replace him with uh, if, if he disappears. You know, there's, there's no point uh, replacing unless you're improving or at least considering believing that you're improving. Um, and again, with Liverpool, I mean, Jurgen Klopp has done a fine, fine job since he arrived at Liverpool. If he hadn't, then he wouldn't be there anymore, I would presume. Um, Chelsea have made changes when they felt it necessary to make changes. Uh, and and the, this, this great swirl of public opinion around every managerial change at the top clubs in the Premier League is, is something they have to deal with. And of course, Manchester United, actually probably the biggest club, although clearly at the moment not the best in, uh, in England, have to deal with this turbulence more than any other club because their global following is so huge. There are so many um, varied opinions. It's, it's almost impossible for them to be sort of universally right. And so, for instance, the appointment of Oli Solskjaer as a full-time manager when it happened was greeted with great joy by supporters who were saying after he had a wonderful time as, as a caretaker manager. Fantastic. We've got Solskjaer now. So we should. He's been brilliant. He understands the club and so on. And then two or three months on, they've lost a lot of games and people are saying, oh, we appointed Solskjaer too soon. This was a terrible error. You know, what, what were they thinking? And, and in many cases, these are the same supporters who were applauding when they did appoint him. And so it, it's, it's very easy from the outside to be judgmental or opinionated about how clubs uh, hire and fire their coaches. Um, within, there are so many factors for them to, uh, to consider. It, it must be in the moment of, of hiring or the moment of firing, very, very difficult. So I guess you have seen Liverpool losing to Watford 3-0 two days ago. Yes. Uh, so as a football fan, uh, uh, not speaking from a broadcaster point of view, as a football fan, how did it feel to see like a top team finally losing so that other teams get a bit of respite to celebrate on their failure, probably? Well, I, I must say, I think it's great for the Premier League um, I was excited by the Liverpool narrative. I was excited by the potential of them going through a season unbeaten. I really admire their coach. They've played some fantastic football this season. Um, and they have such a rich history that, that, that they've built a sort of snowball of nostalgia around them. And, and Liverpool Football Club, um, when they are crowned champions, as they certainly will be before too long, will be just an extraordinary bundle of joy. And, and I, I think that's absolutely great. Having said that, um, I, I think it's just fantastic for the Premier League that its second bottom club um, from the relegation zone can come up with a performance as formidable as Watford did to beat the champions in waiting. And, and what that does is underline again the strength of the league. And that is why, and you asked me to speak as a spectator, as a, as a supporter, that is why supporters love to turn up at the ground because 
there is this uncertainty. There is this jeopardy. Everything logical on Saturday evening said that, of course, Liverpool would beat Watford. And in the end, the thrill of the game is that Watford didn't just beat Liverpool. They beat them comfortably. They outplayed them. And, and that's extraordinary. And, and that's why we love the game. So I guess this is the first time again Arsenal will not be qualifying for European competitions for the first time in 25 years. And that is, as we can see, a result. It has started from the last few years of Wenger when they failed, started to slowly failing to reach the top four. So what do you think should be Chelsea's threshold for Frank Lampard next season? Should he stay on as a manager to avoid turning another London Giants into Arsenal? <laughs> well, first of all, Sartak, uh, you say that Arsenal aren't going to be in the uh, European competition next season. Um, but I don't think you can be sure. That's a very competitive area of the Premier League. Arsenal might very well com uh, compete in European competition next year if they have a strong last 10 games of the season, there's every chance they'll finish in the top five, six, seven. And, and if Manchester City's band goes ahead and the right person wins the FA Cup, even eighth place could get into Europe next year. So I wouldn't write off Arsenal just yet. They could also win the FA Cup. Well, coming, coming from a Chelsea fan point of view, I would ideally think in my head that Arsenal won't qualify because that would <laughs> give me some sadistic pleasure. Yes, well, I, I understand that. I understand if you're talking about it from a, from a competitive or partisan point of view, I understand why you might want to feel that way. But uh, I, I would say to you, Arsenal are certainly still in, still in with a better than fighting chance. Um, you know, there are 10 games left for everybody. Uh, actually, 11 for Arsenal. That's 33 more points to play for. You know, nothing except probably the title itself. Nothing is really decided yet. Uh, and that's why I wouldn't want to draw any conclusions about Chelsea either. Um, uh, and uh, as for a threshold for Chelsea, um, I, I think theirs has been a unique circumstance this season um, under Frank Lampard, a new fresh manager uh, with a new young team. They, of course, had uh, the transfer embargo to, to deal with to start with. I, I would say that it would be two-faced of us as a football public having said at the outset in August that let's just wait and see with Chelsea. They're a work in progress. They are this new young project, so we shouldn't impose uh, too heavy an expectation on them. It will be two-faced of us now if Chelsea were to slip away the last few weeks and maybe finish fifth, sixth, seventh, to be critical. That, that was the expectation beforehand. The fact is that to this point, Frank Lampard, I think, has, has more than met that expectation He's under pressure now to see it through, if possibly he can. Um, and who's to say he won't? He might very well. But if, if they do slide away, that, I think, would be natural, really. Natural, given the makeup of the team he has. Um, and I wouldn't be harsh on him. I, I, and I don't suppose Chelsea supporters would. And I don't suppose Chelsea ownership would. Uh, I, I could end up looking silly for saying this, but I think almost whatever happens with Chelsea between now and the end of the season... Frank Lampard will start next season in charge of them. So the last question before we finish off. So bearing the big six clubs of the English Premier League and Leicester City and Sheffield United, because they are currently sitting in top six, who has been the player of the season for you so far? Oof. Uh, my player of the season 
I think would be Virgil van Dijk. So it doesn't, it no, doesn't often go to a defender. No, we are, we are speaking about players outside big six clubs. Oh, outside, outside, outside big there. six clubs and Leicester and Sheffield United. We are. And what about Wolves? Why why are you not including Wolves in that? Uh, uh, because they are still in the fight. We are excluding Sheffield United because they are just a new promoted club and they are within the top six fighting for it. Okay. So, but yeah, we are, okay, but, fine. Yeah. Okay, well, in that case. Um, well, uh, listen, from outside of the clubs that you've excluded, Wolves have been the outstanding team. Yeah. Um, so, uh, gosh, they've got so many to go with, uh, with Jimenez and Jota and uh, Moutinho and Neves. Uh, it's very, very, very hard to call. Um, but, uh, I, oh, gosh, it's a tough one. Jimenez as a centre-forward, brilliant. Ings for Southampton. Absolutely outstanding. Maybe he would have a call because that was a club that was going backwards fast and and has salvaged itself brilliantly. So Danny Ings for Southampton would be on on my short list. Uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin for Everton, who's had a remarkable um, sequence of games over the last couple of months. So he would be at the top of everybody's thinking. But it, I think um, I think what I would want to do is sit down with a Wolves fan and say, uh, ask him or her to tell me who their player of the season is. And whoever Wolves' player of the season is, I would make the player of the season under your rules. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for speaking to us, Peter. It was nice, amazing to have you on the podcast, as usual. And we hope like you... a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. And we hope you have a great finish to the season and beyond. Because I guess you will be doing commentary in Euros as well. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. We're, the world is an uncertain place at the moment, as we know, in terms of uh, travel and movements and so on. So let's, let's hope that the health of the world is good enough for us all to go and do these things in the summer. Thank you. Have a nice Thank day. Thank you, Sartak. You too.